You may be seated. Now, if you haven't got one of those outlines I put on the back counter, um, there may still be some back there. I only have 30, so share one if it's husband and wife kind of thing. But uh, I'm going to work through that outline point by point eventually. <laughs> uh, what happened is that our yearly congregational meeting, our annual meeting, um, in January, I, I made mention of our adoption fund, okay? And it's a fund we started, I don't know, a couple years ago in order to accept donations. And the fund has been growing, and the idea behind it was to help people who would like to provide a home for a needy child, adopt, right? Because adoption has become very expensive. Well, I had commented that the funds could... Uh, assist a married couple or even a single person to adopt. And that caught somebody surprise. And the question arose, fine, and I think it's a good question. Should we be a church that encourages single parent adoption? And I could be wrong. I think the, the underlying concern would be, you know, like, where would the father figure be in such a home? Or maybe the mother figure in such a home, if you were a single parent. And I understand that. I, I have that same concern. And I think that was perhaps the main concern when the question came up, but surely there are many challenges that go beyond a father figure or mother figure's absence when it comes to single parenting. There's a lot of, a lot of hurdles that have to be jumped through, hoops you have to <laughs> you get through. But that is also, there's a lot of challenges, as every one of us can attest to a couple parenting, for that matter, right? I mean, kids are a challenge. Well, at the meeting, I was kind of caught off guard by the concern. I never viewed single parenting as sin, per se. And I'm not saying anybody else in, in that meeting did either, but that was my immediate thought. What, is that sinful? I did not consider it a, a, a right or wrong question. I view parenting and even single parenting as a good, better, and best concern in, in those waters. Good, there's good, there's better, there's best. In other words, you could parent well or good as a single mom. It would be tough. But you may be better, right, if you tried it as an established and wealthy single mom who worked out of her home, right? That would be better than if you were a single person going to work daily and still trying to raise a child or two or three or whatever. Finally, it may be best, right, to adopt as a married couple where one is the breadwinner and the other can spend more time with the child, if that ever happens these days. It does, I get it. But I kind of settled on the idea that it's, it's important how we ask the question. What is the question we ask? As the question can often limit our answers. All right? For example, Toby, you'll like this one. 
If you ask who's the best football team in the NFC North, the Bears or the Vikings, the question asked that way, it's going to force you to decide between two things only. It does not allow for other answers, does it? Are there no other options? We know there are. What about the Packers? What about the Lions? You cannot expect me to pick one of the two when there are four teams in the conference. So then the question, who is the best team in the NFC North, the Bears or Vikings, is a question that does not allow for a correct answer, probably. This brings me back to the question, should we be a church that encourages single-parent adoption? And if I make that the question, which maybe wasn't ultimately the question that night, I, but it became my question, okay? This became my question to wrestle with scripturally. If that is the question, should we be a church that encourages single-parent adoption, then my answer is maybe. Though God made Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, which means what? We had one man and one woman, the father and the mother, the husband, wife. The question is not about merely who's permitted to bear children, to have intercourse, to train them up. We would agree, a husband and wife. The question is a broader one, though. It is one of the needy child. It is one of the orphan. It is one of parenting. And as I say, I, I don't believe that is a question of right or wrong as much as good, better, and best. Furthermore, in our fallen world, we all know there are no ideal situations which is what we think we want. We want to do right. We want perfect parental love and care. We want the ideal mother and father. We want the best of homes. But there we must pause for a moment. For ideally, ideally, widows and orphans do not exist. The question about who should care for them is already spoiled, isn't it? Or tainted. It's been wrecked by sin and by God's curses against sin. We are not in the garden. If we were, then there would be no orphans. There would be no widows. And parenting would be sin-free. Outside of the garden, we deal with broken things. Death. Abuse, divorce, remarriage, selfishness, etc. So I think the question might better be this. Does God permit single parenting? Or does God choose to use unmarried people to meet the, meet the needs of widows and orphans? Or... 
Does God bless the child of single parenting? My answer to all three is, my answer to all three of those questions is certainly he does. Certainly he does. So I want to begin by reading one Bible story. It's a story I actually preached from when I was a speaker at Bethany uh, uh, Services, the adoption banquet, when I first came to Elto. It was an odd choice. Um, the story, not me, both. But here it is, Genesis 21, which is what I asked you to look at, verses 1 through 21. It's the story of a single mom. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who, who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, my story's not about them. There are two others in this story that show us God's heart for a child of a single parent. It shows us his heart of love for that parent. And so we continue on. Verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned. That's still not the child. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar. Ah, there we are. Son of Hagar, Hagar's son. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, meaning Ishmael. That's the boy's name. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For, though, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she, this boy I think is like 12 or something. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make, you, I will make him into a great nation." 
Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. That's that story. God, my point in it is God heard the voice of the boy. God heard the, the weeping of Hagar. And God spoke to the single mother. He, he determined, the Lord did, to be with mother and child. He cared for them. So then my three questions come back, right? Does God permit single parenting? Yes. Does God choose to use unmarried people to meet the needs of widows and orphans? Yes. At least here he, he, used, he uses unmarried Hagar to meet the needs of her own son. Does God bless the child of, a, of single parenting? Certainly he does. That was the introduction. Now I'll work through my outline. A. There is, there is the problem of widows and orphans and the poor. Number one, the fact that widows and orphans exist means death and sin have entered the world. But widows and orphans are not sin. Married couples and single people are not sin. Neither is it sin to care for the widow and the orphan. As we shall soon see, that is a loving thing. Number two, I get it. Sometimes we picture in our minds that things should be a certain way, but the picture we have is not always the picture God has in his mind. Look at Hagar and Ishmael. Especially in this fallen world where men's hearts are hard and selfishness is rampant. In such a world, God wishes for a few good people, especially his church people, to step into circumstances open themselves up, to step into people's lives where there is need. B. Now God addresses the problem of the widow and the orphan from his heart. And he wants us all to share his heart of concern for them and to be a solution to the problem. Number three, the Apostle James writes, religion... This is for all of us. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, James 1.27. The word visit here, okay, it carries a deeper meaning than stopping by for a cup of coffee. How are you doing today? Although it could include that. It means you will tend to them. You will bring to them. Yourself, you will help them to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. David writes in Psalm 68, 5 through 6, Father of the fatherless, he's referring to God, and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He he leads out the prisoners 
to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And in Psalm 10, number 5, sorry, in Psalm 10 he says of God, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been helper of the fatherless. That sounds like how he cared for Ishmael. Just a pause. I think it's easy to lock into the way when you live in a land of plenty and ease. There have been whole nations disheveled by war, etc., where there are so many children that you don't know what to do with them. Number six, yes, God is the father of all. He is the one from whom we get any good parenting inclination, dads, moms. He's the source of the concept of a father's heart, isn't he? And so his heart is especially concerned for the woman who has lost her husband and the child with no father or mother. Any relationship we have with him is only credible if we begin to become like him. So a person with a heart for orphans is a person God is influencing. In Jeremiah number 7, in Jeremiah 49, 11, God tells the Edomites, Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Wow. In number 8, in Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, we see that God was disgusted by the way the powerful Israelites treated the needy. He advised them to wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Number nine. So, what is God's desire for the orphan, the unwanted, the uncared for? This is the primary question. It is to care. It is to love them. It is to assure they become part of a family. Remember, God settles the solitary in a home. Number 10, what is the primary motivation for all of us? It is to have God's heart. God looks for the ones with love in the heart. He can entrust his people to them. I find it's the same for the church. If we don't have love in the heart, he will not entrust people to us as a congregation. Number 11, think about it. Whenever thoughtful parents put together a last will and testament, okay, the most important question becomes, if we die young, to whom shall we leave the children? If we die young, to whom shall we leave the children? You think about it, don't you? You come up with reasons. Your brother and his wife 
can certainly afford to take on another child. So that makes sense financially. Or, my sister and her husband have no children and they really, really want one. So they would probably pour a lot of affection on ours. Or, or maybe not. For they don't seem to pay much attention to our kids currently. <laughs> right? Or, my sister loves our children more than we do. She should be the parent. But she's not married. That's not the most important thing to me at that point. She loves them and will sacrifice for them like we do. Number 12. When it comes to loving the needy like God, where is the church? We should be all over those in need. The widow, the orphan, the sojourner. How can we help? Who is available and has a heart to care for someone else's child? 13, I'll confess, I've always been leery of adoption. Kind of, kind of a, I'm glad it's not me mentality. That sounds horrible. And it's not to my credit. And I say that, don't emulate that. I mean, I'll help. I'll support you. I've just never liked the thought of those extraneous challenges of adoption, the issues, you know, that come with a child who's brought into my house, my already existing home from a home that, that he or she originated, that I don't know what went on there or what those parents were. And I know... Some of you, you know the difficulties of adopting. I give a lot of credit to a couple or, or a single person, whatever, who wants to love like that. See, it is to be like God to tend to the need of widow, orphan, sojourner, and the lowly. This attention is a staple for godly living. 14, foster care is not a sin. How would you even ask that question? Why would that even come to your mind, you might think? Foster care is not a sin. It, it is, I find it commendable for people to step in and help provide a temporary home to a child that cannot be in his current one. Orphanages are not a sin, though the name itself has a dirty and abusive sound to it. All the movies you've seen, the ones about the hard knock life, you know, and all that kind of thing. Images of a crusty head of, head of the orphanage, Miss Hannigan from Annie, right? Singing sarcasm. How some women are dripping with diamonds and some women are dripping with pearls and here she's dripping with little girls. There's also the image you get of the uh, orphans of London from Charles Dickens' story Oliver Twist. 
please, sir, I want some more. But orphanages are not sin. 16, you have heard, the, heard of the orphan trains, maybe. This surprised me. They, they ran in America for a time from 1854 to 1929, the orphan trains. 200,000 children were moved from cities like New York and Boston to the American West to be adopted. It was a social welfare effort by the Children's Aid Society and spearheaded by a congregational minister with a good heart, I think, named Charles Loring Brace. Reverend Brace felt quote, this is a quote, the best of all asylums for the outcast child is the farmer's home. The great duty is to get these children of unhappy fortune utterly out of their surroundings and to send them away to kind Christian homes in the country. That makes sense. The orphan trains became a legitimate answer to the thousands of children living in the streets of several major cities. These kids were in search of food, shelter, money. They sold rags, matches, and newspapers, buy me last pape, to survive. Many of them ended up forming gangs, actually, and stealing and pickpocketing because life on the streets was a life of survival, and it was dangerous. Now, if you haven't heard of the orphan trains, then you must know that they were criticized after the fact, and possibly during, because there were negative examples. Some of the families out west wanted to take in an orphan mostly to work the farm. The orphan was a farmhand to some, and not really a son or daughter. As the Disney musical Newsies, Newsies circa 1899 was couched in this time period of the orphan trains. 17, single moms are not sinning. Single dads are not sinning. Eighteen. My grandmother had a child out of wedlock. It was in 1935 when you didn't normally do that kind of thing. It was my dad. And certainly that was a sin for her to have a child out of wedlock. However, her commitment to raising her son was not. Should she have remained unmarried to raise her out of wedlock son? Rather than marry Leo Gappa when my dad was about 12, perhaps she should have remained unmarried. I never knew them to get along too well. He always struck me as a bump on a rock while she poured out her heart for me. Marriage was a decision she made, I, I think, most likely to provide a father figure 
and financial stability for her and her boy. But as time went on, there did not seem to be a lot of love between husband and wife. And doubtless, the way she tended to my dad and later my mom and her grandchildren, it was a great blessing. There's not too many women in my life that have ever left such an an impression. I experienced love for my grandma. Number 19, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul gave advice to the Corinthian church. He said that a believer who is married to a non-believer, who wants to divorce the believer, that even though they had children together, it would be permissible to take the children and go. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. I'll read it. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In such a case, not only is Paul advising for the propriety of divorce, but he's saying that single parenting is better than to remain in a marriage where a non-believer is set against his or her Christian spouse. Single parenting could be preferable. D. Every single one of us Christians should want to love like God loves. Make no mistake. You can do no wrong when you care for widows and orphans. But is there a way you could do your caring better? Number 20, is God's desire that a single person become an adoptive parent? In some instances, for sure. 21, this brings me to the story of a young woman named Katie Davis. Tracy read a book a while back, told me the story, as I've been wrestling with this, about this young gal. When Katie was a senior in high school, she went on a three-week missionary trip to Uganda. While she was there, she fell in love with the poor. She fell in love with the people. She felt God wanted her to help them, like on more than just the missionary trip basis. So, less than a year later, Katie graduated from high school and put college on hold. And she returned to Uganda and was given a position to teach there in an orphanage. Though she couldn't speak the the native language, they provided a translator. Katie saw much poverty in Uganda. She saw much hunger. It pained her to see young children starving. She also realized that many children were unable to go to school because their parents could not afford 
afford to pay the fees. And some children had no parents, while others lived with elderly grandparents or other relatives who also didn't really have the means to support them. So Katie's heart went out. More and more she prayed and planned for ways to what? Demonstrate God's love. And she began to invite children to her home. She, she fed them a meal every day. She gave them limited medical assistance. She wasn't a doctor. She decided to foster care three girls whose grandmother died as they were living with her until she could find, Katie could find them relatives who would take them in. Noble. It became obvious to her that she needed to raise money so that more children could go to school and eat a meal, which would allow them to stay in their homes, because so often what would happen is Ugandan parents would actually give their children to the orphanage because they couldn't afford them anymore. Not because the child was actually an orphan, but because they couldn't provide. So she phoned, or whatever she did, back home to her parents to see if they could send $200 or so, because that's about how much it would cost in fees for the child to go to school and to pay a little bit towards a meal each day for the child. A whole year, 200 bucks. She also asked friends of her parents if they wanted to, like, sponsor a child. And on it went. Remember, Katie's driving motivation was to show love by her teaching and her actions the way Jesus Christ showed his love to her. Her efforts turned into what is known now as Amazama Ministries, which means truth ministries, whose mission statement, listen to this, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through authentic relationships, excellent education, and strengthened communities. That's a wonderful mission statement. Well, through a variety of various circumstances, Katie began to take young orphan children into her home to live with her, starting with those three girls whose grandmother died, okay, more came into her home, and in a few short years, Katie actually adopted 13 girls. She reasoned that just as God showed love by adopting her and be bringing her into his family so she could demonstrate that same love to these girls, she could make them part of a family. Katie became their mother. She was first a mother, but since she has also become a wife to a man named Benji. They have 14 children, the two of them now, in their family. 22. Is it God's desire only for a man and woman to parent together as father and mother? Apparently not always. I mean, ever since sin and the curse, we've been a bit broken. And we can find agreement with Paul's advice, can't we, earlier to provide, uh, to prove it is only, it's not the only way that God intends to raise children? 23. 
Surely if a man abuses his children, his wife should take the children and leave him. It is her duty. She must protect them from such a monster. She commits sin by remaining with him. She must become a single parent, at least for a time of separation. The courts understand this in America, at least, in other Christian nations or Christian-influenced nations. The church understands it. God requires it. 24. Much good comes from within a household where a godly father and mother love children, natural ones and adopted ones. A household where father and mother train them up in the way of the Lord. Yes. This is a wonderful reflection of the glory of God. 25. Does this mean that God's desire is for every child to have godly male and female role models? I think so. It's important to each child's development, no matter whether the child is a boy or a girl. However, oftentimes the best male and female role models are found outside of your home. It shouldn't be that way necessarily, but it is. It could be a grandmother or uncle or pastor or Sunday school teacher or coworker. 26. In Acts 21, 8 through 9, we hear that the evangelist Philip, who was one of the seven original deacons, Philip had unmarried daughters, four of them. Now, I ask you, would it have been wrong for Philip and his daughters to take on orphans? I'm just being hypothetical. Unfair. They may have, they may have taken on orphans for all I know. For they lived at a time when what happened? They would take young children, parents would, or a woman would who had a child, take unwanted children and they put them outside the walls of the city. They'd expose them, leave them to die. George Grant writes how every ancient civilization had those kinds of issues. They were stained with the blood of the innocent. He writes, unwanted infants in ancient Rome were abandoned outside the city walls to die from exposure to the elements or from the attacks of wild foraging beasts. So play along with me. Would it have been okay for Philip's four daughters to each bring one home and create a whole family from them? Under those circumstances, that's not even a serious question, is it? course they would. What would God want? And I believe in Philip's household, you have an exemplary male role model on top of it in Grandpa Philip. And this to me suggests that no single parent can parent singly. There must be a family of resources to depend on the single parent's own family, right? Their church family, perhaps the broader Christian community. 
married couples have to depend on the community as well. 27. In the end, though, I won't press this too far. You could argue that God is the great single parent who adopted us. Conclusion. I want to be the kind of church in which God's heart beats in all of us. I think we all want that. That his concern for the lowly, for the widow and orphan and sojourner becomes our great concern. I feel that is the way we lean here in Elto already. We have invested our time and talents and treasures to provide a place of worship for all ages. We do not segregate young from old. We provide a child's cry room, diaper changing station. We built an upstairs restroom so that the elderly can come to church. They do not have to descend down the stairs to get to a restroom. Then we paid to have an elevator lift put in so that all could participate in events downstairs. We currently are exploring a way to add jungle gym equipment outside for the young children. Don't get too excited yet, young children. Those things are all material. They're logistical. They're easier, actually. But they reflect that we are thinking about those that depend on us. Yes, we have hearts that beat for the needs of others. Now imagine... If we were a church filled with orphans, if adoption agencies had such a rush, they began to call out, help! Would we all step into that need? You'd have to push me in a little bit. I'm getting closer. Would you take one? Would you take two? Why? What's your reason? It's an important question. And I suggest the answer must come from a heart that beats like God's heart. Do not take in an orphan for what that child could do for you. Take him in for what you can do for him. And when the orphan child is the focus of your thoughts and efforts, you begin to appreciate every stinking person whose heart beats similar, like God's. And then that person, you may have been graciously given the ability to provide a godly home. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in us, that we would um, think your thoughts after you. And uh, sometimes, oftentimes, that's easier said than done. I pray that you would um, cause us to be lovers. In Jesus' name.